According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures once again. Let's uh, return to Matthew chapter 27. Returning to Matthew chapter 27. We are returning to the cross. We're combining episodes 35, 36, 37, and 38 in your Harmony of the Gospel handouts. Led to Golgotha is episode 35. And in uh, Matthew 27, and this is uh, really verses 31 through 34. Then we have six events on the first three hours of the cross. And then we have the last three hours on the cross. When darkness descends, darkness descends at noon, from noon to 3 p.m. local time in Jerusalem. Three hours of darkness. In reality, we get more of a narrative for the first three hours. We get more of a narrative for what he's doing, uh, the interaction with the crowd, the mocking, the, the uh, gambling for his garments, and things of like that nature happen in the first three hours. In the last three hours, or during the darkness, um, we don't have narrative in the text, in the gospel record, as far as what was taking place that was between the Father and the Son. It was the priestly work as he accepted the Father's wrath, as he poured out his soul. Uh, the work that's prophesied and spoken of in the Old Testament, we don't have detailed in what I'm calling the narrative, All right, the, the verbal descriptions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The narrative doesn't describe. In fact, in many ways, the narrative just describes it, and then it's over. Okay, Three hours, the, the, the darkness struck. And we'll see that here. Uh, so the last three hours on the cross is episode 37. In Matthew 27, it's verses 45 through 50. And then we have episode 38, the events attending Jesus' death. Uh, in our chapter now, Matthew 27, it's verses 51 through 56. So all in all, if you're looking at your page here in Matthew 27, or your pages, as it were, uh, we're going to start with verse 31, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 56. And I've got it here on just one spread, left and right, two pages across, um, but four separate episodes that we're combining into a single outline for, uh, for our development. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Ask the Father to bless our thinking, set aside distractions, and to humble us under the authority of his word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thankful, Father, because the truth of your word is alive and powerful today as it ever has been, Father. Uh, your word is alive and powerful. It's always been alive and powerful. Your written word, the living word, your son. Father, we just so rejoice over the living and abiding word of God that not only uh, does its work, but does its work within us, Father, and dwelling richly within us and performing its work in we who believe. So we thank you for uh, the blessing we have on this day to humble ourselves under the authority of your truth, to receive the word implanted, to welcome your word, Father, as becoming a living and, and powerful part of our very being. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. We uh, dealt with this a week ago with uh, point one, the Roman soldiers leading Jesus to Golgotha. Uh, we had some subpoints under that and the details uh, related to Simon of Cyrene, related to the Aramaic expression Golgotha, related to uh, the message for the daughters of Jerusalem that Jesus delivered under point C, 
going to pass by all that as we move on then to point two, the events of the first three hours on the cross. Six events of the first three hours on the cross. And I shared with you a little bit that this harmony, I think, was originally by A.T. Robertson. Um, but it was published in a variety of places. In the, uh, I took it from the uh, Thomas Nelson book of charts and maps, Bible charts and maps. Uh, but I found since then that it's actually been reproduced in a variety of different places, uh, different study Bibles, different Bible commentaries, different uh, Bible encyclopedias that all make use of the same the same uh, harmony. And so whoever it's original to and whoever might claim to hold a copyright to it, I've got no idea. Uh, we're not all that worked up over copyright, I suppose, until someone comes and starts suing us. But um, in any event, I think we're, f- we're free and clear anyway because we've adapted this harmony of the Gospels. In fact, we've modified the date structure on it. I don't hold to a 30 A.D. or a 32 A.D. crucifixion. I hold to a 33 A.D. crucifixion, and we've adjusted the dates accordingly related to uh, the dates that are included in the Thomas Nelson edition of this harmony. Beyond that, we've also tweaked a few other places. I think we've uh, fixed some faulty scripture references and uh, the, the kind of things that maybe don't show up if all you're doing is just looking at a harmony and saying, oh, that's nice. Uh, but if you're teaching through the harmony in the process of 479 hours of teaching, then you start to spot in some cases where the, the passages really aren't, aren't really the best passages for the particular events. And so, anyway, we've tweaked it here and there. We've made about three, I think, adjustments, significant adjustments, um, and uh, and uh, so forth. So anyone that uh, is going to take us to court for copyright violation, I think uh, we'll do very well defending ourselves <laughs> in the sense that uh, in that uh, we uh, have made the appropriate uh, adjustments on the basis of teaching, on the basis of teaching the material. Now, in these six events, what I was going to say earlier is that this... Um, Harmony has been adapted in a lot of different sources. I found no fewer than six references in my Logos library that use the same harmony. All of them have the same label, six events, but none of them outline what those six events are. All right, And so going through the text and creating our own outline, numbering them one through six or labeling them A through F, as it were, is interesting. And Maybe there's some uh, room for flexibility there, in particular since I think to get the six, uh, you have one that's kind of minor and one that doesn't really have a lot of development to it. So uh, anyway, we'll list it for you under point B, no, under point C, and then just leave it as a, uh, as a wonderment as to what is the significance of this, okay? And uh, you'll see what I mean as we approach this. All right, so the first event is Jesus' refusal of the wine. Jesus refused the wine. And why did he refuse the, the wine? Matthew 27:34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting, he was unwilling to drink. After tasting, he was unwilling to drink. I believe that unwillingness was, as listed under main point A, or sub-point A, Jesus refused to have his mind softened. He refused to have his mind softened. Now, that's an interpretive choice I've made, or that's a, uh, an understanding I've come to related to this, that he tasted it and then would not drink the rest of it. 
That's what's uh, made very clear there in Matthew 27:34. It's also recorded in Mark 15:23. It's also recorded in Luke 23:36. Now later, at the end of the crucifixion process, he will drink when they take a sponge and they are going to um, dip it in uh, hyssop. They're going to dip it in this and they're going to bring it up to him. He says, "I thirst." All right. One of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross is, "I thirst." And in response to his statement of, I thirst, they, they dip this sponge in this wine and they put it up to him and he does drink from it. And then he says, it is finished. Okay. And so in, in compiling these accounts, in reconciling these accounts, this is what we must do when we put together a harmony, when we identify that every passage of scripture is true. And we don't fall into an either or trap where we, where we believe, well, he, either he drank or he didn't drink. In which case, we, we, if, if you fall into the either or, then you have no options. One of them has to be wrong. And here in Matthew it says he refused. After uh, tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. But in the John account, he did drink. He, he said, I thirst, and he drank. And then he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. So we don't want to uh, fall ourselves into a trap of an either or. We understand it's both and. Every account is true. This one is early in the process. The other one is at the end of the process. It's two different events. It's two different occasions, one of which in which uh, he refuses and the other at the end where he does. So uh, the accounts are there. Likewise, in Matthew, uh, Matthew records that the wine was mixed with gall. Mark records that the wine was mixed with myrrh. And so is this a scandal? Is this a contradiction? Is this an error in our Bibles? Do we panic over this? Not at all. Mark 15:23. Uh, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then Luke 23:36. Now, these are not contradictory. They're complementary. We have no problem uh, reconciling them in any respect. It's not impossible to reconcile them. Mark 23:36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. Offering him sour wine. So there's three different descriptions of the same event. And all three are true. It was sour wine. It was mixed with gall. It was mixed with myrrh. Simply because a different author chooses to describe a recipe in a different way doesn't mean that they're wrong or doesn't mean that they contradict each other. It just means that's what they were led to write when they wrote that particular uh, gospel record. Secondly, the divided garments. We also looked at this a week ago. The divided garments. So point B, event number two, if you're going to track the six events of the first three hours. The second thing that happened was they divided his garments among themselves. And uh, for this, I think the fullest description comes in John. John 19, verses 23 and 24. We also have the declarative statements made in, in John that this was in fulfillment of Scripture. Matthew just simply says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. But you get a much more thorough description of this in John 19, uh, verses 23 and 24. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. 
and to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, Psalm 22:18. And so we've got a much more complete description. Again, as we reconcile these gospels, does this, does this, do we not like this? Does this problematic for us? Some folks may have problems with this. I hope we can be relaxed. And, and we've done this again and again and again for going back seven years in this study. We've done this on many occasions where one gospel record has a much more thorough description and other gospel records are, are very brief in uh, the matters that they describe. It doesn't mean they're wrong for being brief. And it doesn't mean that they're lies or they're, they're inaccurate for being brief. It just means that they're brief. And uh, the authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are free to be as brief or as thorough as, uh, as they're led to be in the, uh, the writing of the New Testament. You know, when, uh, when one gospel record says that there were two men in the cemetery and another gospel says there was one demoniac at the, cem- at the cemetery... Is that, is that false? No. They're both true as we reconcile them together. Likewise, angels at the tomb when the stone is rolled away. Was there a single angel there? Were there two angels there? Yes. And the different accounts record what it is that they're led to record for the reasons they're led to record that in the context of their particular gospel. All right, now this is fulfillment of Scripture, we understand. Fulfilled the prophecies from Psalm 22, 18. Also, it's in this connection that Jesus offers up his prayer of forgiveness. The, div- the division of the, gar- of the garments is a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18, an event for which, by the way, we struggle to find a historical record, a, a historical aspect of this in the life of David. We don't have any Bible reference to this in the life of David where people divided his garments. But we do have this in David's prophecy of Psalm 22 being fulfilled in the life of Christ. So, uh, for this morning, let's go ahead and turn back to Psalm 22. Let's take a look at it again. I challenged you to think about this in the last week as we were running out of time. Psalm 22:18. And my question was, when in the life of David did he write Psalm 22? Did he write this as a little boy shepherding uh, Jethro's, or, or not Jethro, Jesse's um, sheep? Did he write this uh, as a renegade um, running from King Saul? Did he write this as king crowned and seated on the uh, throne of Israel? Did he write this as a, there was a period where he lost his throne and he was in exile. Uh, his son Absalom had rebelled against him and David had to flee Jerusalem uh, for a period of time until he was restored to his throne. Um, was it during that exile that he wrote this? Was it after his exile when he was restored to his throne that he wrote this? Was it this at the end of his life? Nobody knows. We cannot know. There's nothing in the text that tells us or gives us any clues. Uh, there are a few things that we might say as are allusions to things. In other words, the hostility and the whisperings against him. We could view that as maybe during Absalom's rebellion or maybe during Saul's uh, hunting him, but n- nothing specifically. It says, for the choir director, upon Ijaleth, Hashashar, a psalm of David. What's that about? <laughs> okay. Well, you've got to study the, the, 
uh, prologues to the Psalms, and some of these are musical directions and are the choice of instrumentation. Some, you know, there's some music that works well with particular instruments. You know, Doug could tell you this, any musician could tell you this. Certain music that works great on piano, certain music that works better with guitar, certain music that would be uh, unbelievably awesome with one particular music but, uh, instrument, but would actually be kind of crummy with another kind of instrument. All right. And... As it were, we've got instrumentation descriptions for many of our many of our hymns. But when you look at this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. We can envision a number of episodes in David's life where he might voice such a thing. There were various points in his life where he might have felt abandoned by God. And yet we go back to First Samuel, Second Samuel, and we go back to the Old Testament, we try to find a, a precise event where David communicated an abandonment and um, we, we, we may find a verse that kind of fits or we may not. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. You know, we can easily envision this as David giving testimony to the fathers, his tri his personal father, Jesse, his tribal fathers, uh, those previous heroes from the line of Judah that preceded him. This would have included Boaz. This would have included, um, obviously, uh, Judah himself and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and so forth, the patriarchs. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. When was David despised? By the population in general, when was David despised? That's a little bit harder to pinpoint, right? Because early on, uh, much of the reason why Saul was so hostile to David was because David was not despised. David was praised. David was celebrated. Uh, David was viewed as being an improvement over Saul. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And so songs like that uh, is what motivated much of uh, Saul's hostility where David had to run for his life and be a renegade. Um, that was not a being despised by the population. All who see me sneer at me. They, they separate with the lip. They wag the head. They wag the head. Open mocking saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. And this is almost word for word some of the despising that's going to come from the, the uh, scribes and Pharisees at the cross, the religious leaders at the cross. They're going to say, You're the Son of God. Come on down. If He delights in you, you delight in Him. Does He delight in you? We struggle to find a time in the life of David where that open mocking, that challenge, let's see the Lord get you out of this one. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Well, we can certainly envision that for David. We don't have clear pictures of who Mrs. Jesse was or a little baby David trusting in Jesus. There's no narrative that describes that. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. But it doesn't take long, and we reach some points where we know there is no episode. Not only can we not envision it, but it's not even possible. 
They pierced my hands and my feet. When did that happen? We, not only did that not happen in the life of David, it couldn't have happened in the life of David. As a, uh, as, as the fact is, even when he lost his throne, he was never crucified. When he returned back to his throne, he, then he died an old man and, uh, you know, cold in his bed with a little virgin girl there to keep him warm. He, but he was never crucified. So what was it in David's life that caused him to write this psalm? You have any thought to that? Okay. My thought, I believe that David saw the cross. And I believe David was a prophet. Uh, and that we know that many prophets are put into visions called in the Spirit. The Apostle John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he saw visions. He heard the sound of many waters and so forth. Ezekiel was in the spirit and he saw visions of Jerusalem and actually was caught up between heaven and earth and saw a number of things in the spirit. Um, A lot of the prophets saw visions of the future times. Daniel saw visions that terrified him. Visions of of Antichrist. Visions of this great stature, these four beasts. Uh, Prophets would see many visions. I believe uh, David saw the cross. He was given a vision of the cross. And in his vision, whether it was a waking vision or a dream while he was sleeping, either way, the vision that he saw was the cross from the perspective, the first person perspective. A first person perspective. That is, if you think about it, Peter saw the cross at a distance. There's no narrative record of Peter being nearby with the women at the foot of the cross. But he says he was an eyewitness of the cross. And so I believe that Peter saw it, but he saw it from a distance. He saw it from the next hill over. He saw it from a distance where all he could see was the, you know, the, the crosses there and the men hanging on him. Uh, he wasn't in close proximity. I think he saw the cross at a distance. I believe John saw the cross in proximity. That John was at the foot of the cross with Mary, with the, old, with the other women, and Jesus committed Mary's care to John, and we'll see that. We'll see that coming up here in uh, point four. All right. So Peter saw the cross at a distance. John saw the cross in proximity. I believe David saw the cross on the cross from the perspective of Jesus himself in a vision, in a dream, looking out, seeing the people there mocking him, seeing the people there, probably saw Mary and saw John, Saw the Roman soldiers, saw the the high priest, saw the the uh, the, uh, the the priests or the we don't know that the high priest himself was there, but we know that there were priests and Levites and and scribes and Pharisees that were there. And and David saw this all through a vision, and then composed Psalm 22, and then composed Psalm 23, <laughs> because that follows the other. Okay. Psalm 22, 23, 24 coming in a sequence in different ways. All right. The fulfillment of prophecy. And would, uh, would David have totally understood everything? Probably not. But he would have understood at least enough to compose what he wrote. All right. Of all the interesting things to consider... The experience of David in writing Psalm 22 is, uh, is one that I spend a lot of time chewing on. Back to Luke 23 then. Luke records Jesus' prayer of forgiveness. Luke 23:34. And I, I expect that maybe our Lord offered this prayer in a variety of contexts. 
that he probably offered it up repeatedly at various stages. You know, when the, when he was scourged, I imagine he offered up this prayer. It's, it's just not recorded for us in Scripture the, the, the way that it is recorded for us here. But each step of the way, Luke twenty three thirty four. They came to the place called the skull, and there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. So it's in that verse. It's actually listed before the garment splitting. And so um, it might be best to go ahead and separate it out from the divided garments uh, activity and put it a little bit earlier than that. Put that forgiveness as simply the the first thing out of his lips when they when they crucify him. The first thing is out of his lips when they uh, nail him and put the uh, the post upright. Generally speaking, that's how it worked. The, the crossbar would be laid down. He would be nailed to the crossbar. The crossbar is affixed to the to the center post, and then the whole thing is lifted up to the uh, to the vertical position. So. Uh, maybe it's best to take that prayer of forgiveness as coming earlier than the uh, divided garments because that's the order that we have it there in verse 34. All right, third thing that happens, back to Matthew, what I'm calling the seated watch, the seated watch, Matthew 27, 36. There's not a lot to this. It's not recorded in Mark, Luke, or John although it's clearly implied by Mark, Luke, and John. You could infer it in any of the gospel records. Matthew 27, 36. Matthew is the only verse, is the only gospel that explicitly spells it out that they sat down to keep watch. So, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And then it goes on above his head. They put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And then the narrative goes on to describe the two thieves and so forth. Well, what's the significance of verse 36? Sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. I've titled it The Seated Watch under point C. The Seated Watch, Matthew 27:36. It's not recorded in Luke, John, Mark, not recorded in the other accounts. Although, like I say, you can infer it because they don't go anywhere, right? When they crucify him, and then uh, later on, the centurion is going to have a testimony, and it's clear uh, there's soldiers still around after he's dead. Uh, one of them is going to thrust a spear into his side. You know, they're going to go by the, the three men to break their legs. And they're going to observe that uh, Jesus is already dead, so they don't break his legs. So obviously, in the context of every gospel record, they didn't go anywhere. They're still there after he's crucified. But none of them, except Matthew, record the fact that they actually sat down to guard, to keep watch over him there. To keep watch over him there. So why is that significant? Well, if you take it out then you uh, have a real tough time getting six events of the first three hours. <laughs> All right? Um, so if you put it back in, then you can number six. 
And your harmony says six. Six items, six events of the first three hours on the cross. Okay. But what's the point in keeping watch? And by the way, this is going to come back again. They're going to keep watch on the tomb. Uh, they're going to insist upon it, keeping watch on the tomb. And uh, the seated watch, I believe, is significant because what's happening here is, above all else, it's a work of God the Father and it's a work of God the Son that has to be observed, not only in the human realm, but in the angelic realm as well. That everything the Father does in his judicial action is going to be observed by elect angels and fallen angels alike. That there can be no dispute as to the legitimacy of any action that God has taken, that the Son has taken in obedience to the Father's plan. And there can't be any dispute in the sense that, well, this was an event that wasn't witnessed. Or, well, maybe something happened when nobody was looking. All right? And I believe this is going to become significant for us as we move forward, uh, as I said, to the, to the, uh, the burial, to the testimony as it regards to the resurrection, to some of the lies that are put forth with respect to, um, with respect to the work of Jesus on the cross. Um, you know, some of the mythology that comes about and the claim that, well, Jesus was never crucified. That Jesus, they swapped him out. It was actually, uh, it was actually Judas who was crucified. Or it was actually, uh, uh, Barabbas who was crucified. And they were just tricked into thinking it was Jesus who was crucified. Okay? You know who says that? Who says that? Well, yeah, the Muslims. You talk to a Muslim today, and in the Quran, Jesus was not crucified. The Quran will also tell you Jesus was not the Son of God, but you know, there's other problems with the Quran. But understand, it, why is it important that we have testimony to the fact that there were witnesses observing his crucifixion from beginning to end? That no one, they, they didn't just go away. The soldiers didn't just nail him and then go away. Uh, then it wasn't, you know, the disciples couldn't have pulled him off the cross and put somebody else up there in his place. And then, you know, when the Romans weren't looking. And then the Romans came along and said, oh, he's dead. And they put a dead guy in the tomb that was a different dead guy than Jesus. Okay? No, the disciples didn't steal the body either before he died or after he died or anywhere along the way. There were witnesses to the entire process. That becomes important. I think also the seated watch becomes important in the fact that he is beheld beheld in this world. You know, um, when we taught our Timothy series years ago, um, I tried to communicate how struck I was by this song. The Apostle Paul writes a psalm. And the psalm that he writes is recorded for us in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. It's uh, the, the confession of godliness, the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and um, all of the witnessing that takes place to the, to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ is contained in this psalm. He tells Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. That's 1 Timothy 3.14. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. We are members of the body of Christ, the royal family of God. We are assembled together. You know, this, this church building is not a temple and it's not a, it's not a holy place by virtue of its architecture or anything earthly, but it is sacred when the saints are assembled together. 
Not because, uh, again, the architecture is sacred because we are the family of God and we are assembled together. And you ought to know how you ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then this psalm that he writes, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, he who was vindicated in the spirit, he who was seen by angels. Okay, I'm, I'm repeating all the he who's, but in the context, that's what you have here in this psalm. This, the testimony, the confession of godliness is the confession of Christ. I can, I can join this confession of godliness, not because I'm godly, but because he is. And I'm in him and by my faith in Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. And what we were looking at in our angelology study, right? Announced at his birth, uh, ministering to him at his, in the wilderness temptations, ministering to him in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and probably repeatedly throughout his earthly ministry. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. And when did that happen? Well, the term nations also references Gentiles. And he was proclaimed among the Gentiles. Proclaimed as innocent by Pilate. There's a Gentile. Proclaimed as the Son of God by the centurion. There's a Gentile. Sat down to, wa to be watched over by these Roman soldiers. A Syrophoenician woman came to him and proclaimed that she was just a Gentile dog looking for some table scraps, looking for some crumbs. He was proclaimed by Gentiles. And then taken up in glory. This is the mystery of godliness. This is our common confession. And we all proclaim this as those who are in Christ, proclaiming the, death, burial, the, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. All right, so additional uh, emphasis on the seated watch. Well, um, we'll just have to let it go at that. Sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Fourth event, point D. Pontius Pilate ordered the posted inscription. Pontius Pilate ordered the posted inscription printed in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, although the Hebrew is likely the Aramaic dialect. Pontius Pilate ordered the posted inscription. It's a trilingual inscription. No questions as to the Latin or the Greek. Uh, I am fairly certain that the Hebraisti dialect that's mentioned here is more specifically the spoken colloquial Aramaic that was common in, uh, in Jesus' day. That the actual biblical Hebrew was not as common. Limited to the uh, scribes, limited to the experts, that the, the general population at large uh, couldn't read their Hebrew Bibles. They were, they were limited to the Targums. They were limited to the Jewish, uh, the Aramaic paraphrases. They were limited to the instruction coming to them from their scribes and their Pharisees, as it were. Because the colloquial language, the spoken language, the common language of the street, was not Hebrew, it was Aramaic by this point of time. That's largely assumed to be true. Um, there are of course, arguments the other direction also in the, in the journal literature and so forth. But beyond those, I think there's good cases to be made that 
biblical Hebrew was more known than they give it credit for, uh, I still don't think that it was common, and I still don't think that people on the streets would have been using it, that um, they would have been using the spoken uh, Aramaic. And, and why I say that is because of what we see here in Matthew 27, what we see here in the fact that when he does shout out, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, when he does shout out these Hebrew words from Psalm 22, these are not Aramaic words, these are Hebrew words. It is a quotation from Psalm 22. The crowd standing by doesn't comprehend it. The crowd standing by does not hear, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crowd standing here says, He's calling for Elijah. The Eli, Eli. Oh, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, why are they calling that out? Unless there is a language barrier. Unless there is a lost-in-translation moment here that the crowds aren't following what he's saying when he's shouting out. And he didn't just whisper it. He cried out with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, I think that this verse gives establishes the language disconnect between biblical Hebrew and spoken Aramaic. All right, the spoken Aramaic. That was the uh, trade language of the Near East from the time of, of uh, you know, Assyria and Babylon and, and onward through the Persian era into the Greek era into the, into the Roman era. In many respects, Koine Greek became a trade language for the educated, but Aramaic was the trade language and the, and the common tongue um, of the East. Both were in common use at this time. Biblical Hebrew, not so much. Okay? Latin, only among the Romans. Okay? And uh, the Romans, posted in their assignments to the East, would be uh, fluent in, in Greek and then, to a lesser degree, some may have an exposure to the Aramaic as well. I suspect that it was probably uh, <laughs> it was probably um, highlighted among the Jewish people to speak amongst themselves in Aramaic rather than in Greek, because more of the Romans would have been familiar with Greek. And and uh, you know, if you want to talk behind somebody's back, do it in a language they don't understand. And as far as that goes, all right. Let's look at the four inscriptions in Matthew. The narrative tells us, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So above his head, they put up a charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is another good exercise for us in harmonizing the four gospel accounts and in relaxing about what a Bible skeptic or a God-hater might, might uh, view as a contradiction or a problem. All right, I don't have any problems with this. I don't have any problems with this at all. I think... Um, in many respects, what the skeptics hate or what they claim are contradictions is that they, they, they hold the Bible to a standard that's not acceptable related to what the Bible even is. Quotations and citations are never or almost never um, intended to be a verbatim. The, the, um, they expect that 
uh, you know, when, when somebody records what somebody said, that they can use quotation marks and have word for word for word exactly the precise words that were spoken or the precise words that were written. Pilate had an inscription put over Jesus' head, and this is what the inscription said. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And that is an accurate record of what that inscription said, even though it's abbreviated, even though it's short, even though it's not verbatim. That's what the inscription said. According to Mark 15.26, the inscription over Jesus said, The King of the Jews. Mark 15.26. So it's an abbreviated description. It's not wrong in any respect. And it's not a lie by any stretch. Mark 15.26. There's the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews, the King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And then uh, down to verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And then the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. All right. According to Matthew's record, the inscription said, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. According to Mark, the inscription against him said, the king of the Jews. You have a problem with that? No. I'm very relaxed about that. I'm not holding the Bible to see. What they do is they, 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 they say, well, see, it's a lie. Mark just said the king of the Jews. But if he's right, then Matthew is lying. Or Luke is lying. Or John is lying. Because they're all different. No, none of them are lying. They're all declaring the inscription. Some, in a more comprehensive matter, we're going to see John's the fullest of all of them, and the rest just chose a shorter selection to convey the sense of what that sign said. All right. Not a contradiction in any respect. Luke, this is the king of the Jews. Kind of a blend between Matthew and Mark, isn't it? This is the king of the Jews. And it's so close to Mark's record. It's virtually identical anyway. It just doesn't have the name Jesus in there. Luke's record says this is the king of the Jews. Now, interestingly, as uh, I look at Matthew, it doesn't say what language the statement is made in. It just says they put up a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. In uh, Mark, it doesn't say what language the uh, statement is made, right? Mark 15, 26. Am I wrong about that? Let me double check. Uh, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. But it doesn't say what language that inscription was in. Likewise, in Luke 23, 38, there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews, and, and, and maybe it's unfortunate that our modern English printings have, you know, there was also an inscription above him, comma, open quote, all capital letters, this is King of the Jews, all caps, period, close quote. And then the next verse goes on and, you know, the narrative continues. It's unfortunate that... Our texts are printed that way because, it, although, sure, that's how we read things, that's how we read our newspapers, that's how we read modern 
things, uh, and it helps us perhaps to understand, okay, that's the inscription, but the ancient world didn't write like that. The original manuscripts didn't write like that. Any citation or quotation uh, does not necessarily have to be of the verbatim nature that has a comma, open quote, word for word, clone, close quote, and uh, the, the totality of a quotation like that. The ancient world never did that. The Bible didn't do that. Other manuscripts from the, from the time period didn't do that. If you're quoting somebody, you could be simply paraphrasing what they said. Not necessarily putting exact words in their mouth. But when we get to John, we find out that it was trilingual. We find out that it was in three languages. And we have the complete, or the, most, the fullest of the descriptions, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And so I think this is the fullest of the four accounts. John 19, verses 19 through 22. It's the fullest of the, of the accounts. And allows us, I think, perfectly to reconcile the other three without any problem at all. The other three are simply abbreviated versions of this one. Alright, so uh, took him out, Jesus therefore, he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. They crucified him with uh, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. So does that mean that he was physically standing there also? Not necessarily. He could have ordered it done and his soldiers affixed it by his instruction. He was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. That's our one description of where this where Golgotha actually was. <laughs> you know, so we're going to take the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location. We're going to take the Gordon's Calvary location or somewhere else entirely. We have no idea. It was just near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So according, this is the only gospel record we have that tells us that it was a trilingual inscription in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And even the expression in Hebrew, in Hebraisti, uh, is a Greek phrase for the Hebrew language that, could, that apply, could apply to biblical Hebrew or it could apply to the spoken Aramaic of contemporary times. That Hebraisti could be uh, a reference to the Aramaic rather than the Hebrew. And so the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. They actually go back to him and complain about what he wrote. <laughs> Just say that he said, I am king of the Jews. He claimed to be king of the Jews. Don't write, he was the king of the Jews. Said that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And that I find extraordinary. <laughs> you know? Um, for Pilate's attitude is just, I think, stubbornness on his part. Hey, I wrote what I wrote. Deal with it. I'm sovereign, and that's what I wrote. And yet, what a picture we have of, of Scripture, right? God is sovereign, and he wrote what he wrote. <laughs> so when Jesus says, it is written, that's not just a stubborn ruler like Pilate telling these obnoxious Pharisees to go away. It's the truth. I have written what I have written, and I'm not changing it. 
<laughs> That's true for what God writes, because God cannot lie. And what he's written, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. All right, so that's the fourth event. Two more events happen in these first three hours. Two others are crucified with him. Two robbers are crucified with him. With him. And we can be, you know, um, relaxed about the idiom with him. Not necessarily... Simultaneous, not necessarily, uh, you know, just within the first three hours, Jesus was crucified. Two others also on either side. Uh, they weren't tried together. We don't even see reference to these robbers until they reach Golgotha. Uh, the idea that they were all three in the praetorium together, guilty, 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 go crucify all three. No, that wasn't the case. These others were evidently pronounced guilty on a previous occasion. They were already condemned the day before, or condemned whenever. Um, Maybe not even led in procession together. Who knows where they'd been held before they were brought out. But since, uh, and it may be that, I, my, my suspicion is, is that they were condemned, but, but uh, the Romans were going to wait until after Passover. You know, why stir up the crowds now? You know, so I suspect they were in a, in a cell somewhere. And until the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus became unavoidable, then... Pilate said, all right, well, let's go ahead and throw those other two up there also. You know, and we're going to have a crucifixion anyway. Do, do all three all at once. They're called robbers. The Greek is leistes, and we've done these studies in the past. Leistes, L-E-S-T-E-S. And the first E has an iota subscript that's a lot of times overlooked. So it would be L-E subscript I-S-T-E-S, leistes. Fifteen New Testament uses. Strong's concordance number is 3027, 3027. And these guys are not your thieves that sneak around when you're not looking. These guys, uh, they're not convicted of burglary. They're convicted of armed robbery, aggravated robbery. Um, these are the guys that sneak your funds away from you. They just beat you up and rob the corpse, you know. Um, Robber, highwaymen, we'd call them terrorists today. Bandit, revolutionary, guerrilla. Later on, uh, or Plato, actually earlier than the New Testament time, if um, he would use the term for pirates. Plato used the term leistes to refer to pirates. Later on, the Greek language developed a separate term, a pirates term, to reference uh, sea robbers. So later on, a, a leistes at sea was known as a perates. But early, before the term perates came into common use, the same term, leistes, was used of pirates. That's what they are. They're just bandits. They're robbers. They're robbers at sea. And, uh, and they're worthy of death. All right? They're worthy of death. They've committed murder to, to steal what they've stealed and what they've stolen. They, uh, they've committed murder as a, a political weapon. They don't like the uh, governor that's been placed over them, so they, they assassinate him. And they bring about political change by murder. Similar to what, you know, the goals that different terrorists have today and different approaches there. Um, anyway, I think 
as I say, there's only 15 New Testament uses. There's not a lot of them, and I'm running up against the top of the hour here. But most of them are with reference to these two that are crucified on either side of either side of Jesus. But the ones that are not, we can spot those fairly quickly here. Matthew 21:13. That's not a crucifixion context. Matthew 21:13. He's driving out the money changers, and he said, "My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. You are making it the hideout for these lastes, these lastai, plural lastai. Um, you know, this is where they hide from the authorities and, and gather their plunder. They gather their loot. This is their stronghold." Matthew 26:55. He's getting arrested here, and he says, Have you come out to me with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a lastace, as you would against a robber? You know, you're armed to the teeth as if you're coming against a terrorist. And then uh, in 27, verses 38 and 44 is our crucifixion context. Uh, likewise, Mark 11, Mark 14, Mark 15, largely in parallel to what we have there in Matthew, Luke 10, 30 and 36. Luke 19.46, that one's different. I think uh, we'll skip over Luke 10. Well, no, we can't skip over Luke 10. We have to look at Luke 10. Because this is the, um, the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among Lestai, robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So they're not, you know, pickpockets that steal from you unbeknownst in the crowd and leave you your merry way. No. They ambush you on the road. So, uh, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So there you go. That's a good use of it there. John 10. You know, you got the good shepherd, then you got the robbers. <laughs> okay. John 18.40, 2 Corinthians 11.26, 2 Corinthians 11. Wow, that one ought to be uh, recent for us, shouldn't it? What's 2 Corinthians about? I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, least I. Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. So who would you rather face, a bandit out there uh, in the wild or uh, a false brother in the church? <laughs> They're both dangerous, and Paul's had to deal with both of them. Then finally, the last item, passers-by hurled abuse. Passers-by hurled abuse. Point F, passers-by. I think that's the correct plural, like mothers-in-law. I think that's the correct plural. You don't want to do mother-in-laws or uh, passerbys. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. But passers-by hurled abuse. The sixth and final event of the first three hours. And something that, again, like the mocking and the scorning, you say, well, what's the big deal? Who cares about the insults? It's interesting. 
Prideful people care about insults. Humble people, not so much. People focused on the Lord, not at all. But people who lose their sight on the Lord, then the slander can start to become hurtful. The insults can start to become hurtful. Particularly when you understand our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, the Son's fellowship is with the Father. The greatest degree of intimacy Jesus Christ has ever experienced is with the Father. And for that to then become the venue or the, the context for the insult becomes very hurtful. Your Father doesn't love you. You know how hurtful that is? To the beloved Son, who has been beloved of His Father since the beginning. Not just the Genesis beginning and not just the Proverbs 8 beginning, but the John 1, 1 beginning, the eternal beginning of the Father and the Son, okay? And hurling this kind of abuse, if He delights in you, come down. If He delights in you, He would deliver you from this. You don't have to go through this. Why, does the, why are you suffering like this? Doesn't the Father love you? Now that could hurt if He allowed it to, if He got His eyes off the purpose for why He's here. So for this very purpose, I've come to this hour. All right, well, we'll pick up on this. And then we got the hours of darkness. We have his sacrificial work and uh, the veil of the temple being rent to two from top to bottom, by the way. Do you think that's important? I think it is. I think that's a detail that's not just thrown there for no reason. That's a detail that signifies something. Reconciliation is from God to us. He did the work we could not do. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, the privilege we have to assemble together. Thank you for the faithfulness of our Savior. Might we be imitators of him, being faithful unto death. We thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.